Would you please join us in prayer? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are above all things, that you stay constant in a changing world, that your love is steadfast and your faithfulness is enduring. And we thought, Father, we thank you that you know us. You know where we go, when we sit, when we rise, when we go out, when we lay down. Father, you're familiar with all our ways and you love us. Thank you, God, for protecting us this past week in the intense weather. Thank you that though many were affected by the heavy precipitation and winds, you have restored power where it was lost and you've allowed us to find peace in you in stormy times. Father, we lift up the many in our body who are in pain and who are grieving. Sometimes the hurt is so great that there are no words to express this. So Lord, we thank you that you intercede for us, that you go with us into the deepest valleys, that we're never alone, and that no darkness is too dark for you. We ask that your light, comfort, and comfort and peace draw close to those who especially need it right now. And Lord, we ask that you be with Eugene as he brings your word to us. Help us to see you clearly and to receive your word with soft hearts. I pray that you would give us something to take with us into our weeks ahead. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in preparation for Eugene's sermon, we're going to be reading from Matthew 5, of verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light the lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Eugene, would you please come up? Well, let's give Isaac and Monica a hand for hosting us this morning. Thank you so much, guys. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the last sermon in our series on the PBCC Family Values. I'd like to thank you all for persevering with me over these past six weeks. Our PBCC family values have defined our church in one way or another for almost as long as I have been alive. It's been a humbling experience um, being allowed to add my voice to the conversation around what is important to us as a church. And I hope this conversation that we've been engaged in continues even after this series, series ends today. I hope you all continue the conversation yourselves by thinking and praying and sharing and even listening to previous teaching on our family values. One particular teaching I recommend you listen to again is the sermon by our brother Jerry Tu delivered on August 7th, 2022. Jerry titled his message, How the Church Functions, and he taught us exactly that. Jerry's exposition of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13 presented us with another take on some of the PBCC family values, including the one value that we have not yet covered in this sermon series. 
participation in God's work. And so I urge you to give it a listen if you can. You can find it on our website. I think that picture turned out quite well, by the way. I didn't run it by him, but it'll be a nice surprise for him when he sees. <laughs> of course, directing you to Jerry's sermon does not absolve me of delivering one of my own. I do believe God has given me something complimentary to add to the conversation. And so let's return one last time to the second chapter of the book of Acts and reflect on our final PBCC family value, participation in God's work. Now, as we've seen in previous weeks, the passage of Acts 2 that we've been focusing on has a chiastic structure. It's organized like the layers of an onion. This week, we're studying the outermost layer of the onion, where Luke tells us and then tells us again about the growth of the early church. These verses have something to say to us about participation in God's work, starting with verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. According to Luke, many people in Jerusalem responded positively to the Apostle Peter's gospel presentation on the day of Pentecost. Drawn by the Apostle's miraculous, multilingual prophecy, a crowd of people stayed to hear Peter explain what Jesus Christ had done for them and would do for anyone else who put their faith in him. About 3,000 members of the crowd decided to do just that, and they were added to the early believers' number. Repeating these words at the end of verse 47, Luke explains that the Pentecost conversions were not an isolated incident, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Even after Pentecost, people continued responding to the gospel, and new believers were added to their number every day. How did these new believers receive the gospel? Well, we know the apostles continued preaching and teaching in the temple courts. Certainly, many non-believers came to faith through their ministry of the word. But in verses 46 and the beginning of verse 47, Luke shows us another way the non-believers in Jerusalem encountered the gospel. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Now, we've already looked at these verses in a previous sermon, but let's look at them again, now with holy imagination. Imagine you are a non-believer in Jerusalem during the first century. Imagine hearing of a community who loved meeting together, whose members regularly invited one another into their homes and took the time to listen to one another's needs. And imagine hearing that the members of this community not only listened to one another's needs, but were also willing to share whatever they had with one another to meet those needs. The members of this community did not believe that anything belonged to them individually, but offered what they had to one another freely and graciously. This community's members loved one another so deeply and so well that despite not having much wealth, they couldn't stop praising God together. Their hope and joy and peace were not tied to their circumstances or to their possessions. Now imagine a member of that community, maybe one you work with or whose kids play with yours, Imagine someone from that community invited you to their home for dinner. And imagine the dinner starting with people passing around a loaf of bread and a cup of wine 
each taking a bite and a sip, and you hear someone put words to what you're witnessing, remember how Jesus loved us? Remember how God accepts us because of him and now lives in us to make us like him? Remember, we're all welcome here, including our guest. And imagine the meal getting underway, plates being passed around, conversation kindling. Someone's eyes meet yours, and looking at you, they smile and ask your name and ask you how you're doing, and you can just tell that they sincerely care. And as you share, they listen because they have no agenda to push, they have no insecurity to cover. They really listen to you. They listen to your heart. And you notice that everyone at the table seems to be doing this for one another. Everyone wants each other to feel heard and seen and known and welcomed. You watch as they care for one another, as they shoulder one another's burdens, as they work with one another to find some solutions. They weep with one another. They rejoice with one another. They laugh with one another. And you ask, is it always like this? And they chuckle and say, no, (laughs) not always. But there's always a way back to grace. Imagine how real those words would feel after what you've witnessed, after what you've seen and experienced. Maybe you'd heard the gospel preached as you passed by the temple courts, but around that table, you felt the gospel lived. Imagine how strange an experience like that would be or maybe not strange at all. A night like that might not change a person's mind about the gospel, but a night like that, followed by a day like that, and then another night, and then another day, and then another and another, until weeks and months and years of Christ-like love stacked up on top of each other like so many bricks, over time, experiences of Christ-like love can become a monument to the gospel. A tangible testimony declaring the truth just by being that the kingdom of God has come and is available to all who want in. It's, if not their belief, such a testimony can earn the respect, even admiration of non-believers. Luke observed of the early church, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible translate this phrase from the original Greek text in much the same way, having favor with all the people. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases the verse this way, people in general liked what they saw. The International Children's Bible, though, offers my personal favorite rendition. All the people like them. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, is this the reaction you expected of the non-believers in Jerusalem? All the people liked them. To be sure, the early believers did encounter persecution at times. As I mentioned last week, likely many of the believers were ostracized by their families of origin for putting their faith in Jesus. And we do know, of course, that bouts of severe persecution from the Roman government washed over the early church in the decades after its birth. Many, both Jew and Gentile, rose up to persecute the early believers over the years. But Luke tells us that many more non-believers, so many that Luke refers to them as all the people, 
recognized the good the early believers were doing. They recognized the goodness and the beauty and the kindness of the early church. And in some of their hearts, God was at work turning recognition into repentance, admiration into acceptance, favor into faith. By God's power at work in them, the preached word the early believers received became the lived word the non-believers believed. The early believers enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now these verses remind us of three things about our final PBCC family value, participation in God's work. First, they remind us that this is God's work. God's work is to save the souls of fallen people. His work also includes reigning over all reality as its creator and providing for his creation as its sustainer, but alongside creation and provision on his to-do list, written in bold letters, is redemption. God was at work in the early church, drawing people into the community, introducing them to his love, opening their spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, softening their hardened hearts, enabling them to receive the gospel, and empowering them to take their first steps of faith in Jesus Christ. God was at work, creating faith where it did not exist before sustaining faith in the early believers and continuing to redeem them from their former ways of living and thinking. Second, these verses remind us that God's work is God's work. It is the Lord who added to their number daily those who were being saved. He did not outsource his labor. It was not Peter's preaching that changed the people's hearts on the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching was the tool God used to save those 3,000 people, but it was God and not Peter's skill as a preacher or erudition as a teacher or excellence as a presenter. It was God who saved the people. When a master artist paints a painting, we don't credit the paintbrush. When Brock Purdy leads his team to a scoring drive, We don't credit the football. God saved the people. That's his work. And he gets all the credit for making it happen. That being said, God has chosen to invite us to participate in his work. Not because he needs our help, but because he delights in his children participating in the family business of saving souls. So what do our verses say about how we participate? Well, third, these verses remind us that we participate in God's work by our love for one another and for anyone else who shows up. Our love testifies to the reality of God's love, of the love we have received from God through Jesus Christ. Simply by loving others, we participate in God's work of redemption. It was the early believer's love that proved the truth of the gospel to the non-believers watching. Just as the miracles the apostles performed verified their authority, so the early believers' Christ-like love verified the reality of what they believed, and it won the favor, and for many, the faith of non-believers. And this points to a perhaps surprising truth. The people of this world are not as blind as we might think they are. Hear me out. 
Yes, ever since humankind rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, we have suppressed the truth by our wickedness, and our foolish hearts have been darkened, as the Apostle Paul explained to the Roman believers. And this suppression of truth and darkening of our hearts has impacted every part of us. Our Calvinist brethren call this total depravity. The totality of our being is corrupted by depravity. But to be totally depraved is not to be absolutely depraved. We are not utterly sinful. We are not as sinful as we could possibly be. Imagine a world like that. No, as a general grace to all humankind, God has preserved in us some capacity for good, some remnants of goodness. We can recognize goodness and admire it when we see it, and sometimes, to some degree, we can even do it. Jesus himself affirmed this in the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon by Jesus recorded in the Gospels. He reasoned with the fathers among the crowd, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If non-believers know how to give good gifts to their children, and they do, then we know that the depravity of the human heart is total but not absolute. We shouldn't be surprised then that when confronted with the goodness of the early believers' love for one another, non-believers responded favorably. They liked what they saw. They respected what they saw, and some even wanted what they saw for themselves. You see, as broken and twisted and corrupted, and yes, depraved as it is, and as much as it resists and rebels against its true source, the human heart, by God's grace, is still able to recognize goodness when it sees it. It is still able to recognize love when it feels it. It is still able to admire what is good and beautiful and kind and even to long for it, to yearn for it, to hunger for it, to search desperately for it. And that means that as believers, all we have to do to bear witness to Christ and to participate in God's work to save souls and advance his kingdom, all we have to do is love one another and be loving to anyone who wants it. We don't need programs, though they may help organize us. We don't need projects, though they may help direct us. We don't need metrics or measurables, though they may help us reflect on our efforts and improve where we need to. We don't need professionals or accreditations or certifications or trainings, though all these things may be worth their while at some point. No, at the end of the day, day after day and night after night, until the days and the nights and the weeks and the months stack up into a monument of God's goodness, all we need is love. The world needs love modeled. The world needs love experienced. The world hungers for it, is desperate for it, and we have it, so let's give it. This is participation in God's work. And to the extent that we do this, we should not be surprised to find ourselves enjoying the favor of all the people. 
to the extent that we model and offer to the world the love it so desperately seeks, we should not be surprised to find the Lord adding to their number daily those who are being saved. Does it necessarily mean it will happen? No. But it shouldn't be surprising. Brothers and sisters, do we enjoy the favor of all the people? Do we enjoy the favor of non-believers as a church or as individuals? Are we respected by the non-believing world? Are we appreciated? Are we admired by the non-believing world? Are Christians, are we, we here in this room, are we welcome, are we a welcome sight to the people of this world? Perhaps you are like me, and you were trained not to care about what the world says, thinks, or feels about Christians or the church. Non-believers' opinions simply don't matter. And whatever they would say would only be negative anyway, right? But the favor non-believers showed the early church challenges that assumption. It turns out the grace of God given to all humankind has preserved in us, at least to some degree, the capacity to recognize goodness when we see it. So we simply cannot dismiss outright the opinions and perspectives of those outside the church. As Sean is quick to remind us, all truth is God's truth. And if God can use a donkey to speak truth to a prophet, Is it not wise to sift what is said about us for truth rather than simply throw it all away? It's worth considering, brothers and sisters. Now again, don't get me wrong. You can see me really trying to couch this with qualification. Don't get me wrong. The church does not exist to seek the world's approval. And the church is beholden to no other judge than its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we cannot deny that there may be some validity to non-believers' critiques of the church, not because they are in a position to judge the church, but because they are in a position to receive from the church. To receive from the church what the church alone has and what they so desperately need. And it turns out that there are some, there are even many in the world who do speak quite highly of Christianity. You might remember this quote from a sermon in my series on the letter to the Colossians. Never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than the early Christian church. This review, this quote comes from actor Rain Wilson, best known for playing Dwight Schrute in the TV show The Office. Though not a Christian himself, Wilson said this and many other positive things about Christianity and its value to society in an interview with Christianity Today editor-in-chief Russell Moore. And many historians would agree with Wilson. Many have observed that throughout its history, the church has generally been a force for good. Christians have built hospitals, schools, orphanages, and aid organizations in places where none existed before. Christians have fought for human rights, for equal rights, for civil rights, for labor rights, a history we do well to remember, especially now during Black History Month. Many of the men and women being honored this month for what they did and how they lived and how they did what they did and how they lived what they lived, they did it because they were followers of Jesus Christ. 
But not everyone feels such favor towards the church today. Certainly not towards evangelical Christianity. A Pew Research study conducted in the fall of 2022 found that among respondents who had never met an evangelical Christian, only 9% had a favorable view of them, while 29% had an unfavorable view. But of the respondents who met at least one evangelical Christian in their life, while those who had a favorable view of them did rise to 24%, the percent of respondents who had an unfavorable view of them also increased to 35%. This seems to suggest that knowing an evangelical Christian personally doesn't necessarily improve a non-believer's view of evangelical Christianity. We say we'll show them our lives and they'll believe. It turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Another study from Pew Research released in the spring of 2023 found that among non-evangelical Americans, so in other words, everyone outside of the evangelical church, only 18% had a favorable view of evangelical Christianity. 32% of respondents viewed them negatively. Now reflecting on these statistics, the executive director of the Center for Worldview Analysis and Cultural Engagement at Southwest Baptist University, Dan DeWitt, lamented, if we take Paul's words seriously, we should care about our reputation with those outside the church. These statistics should grieve us. While we cannot water down our beliefs to make people like us, we need to listen to how the world perceives us. DeWitt was referring to the Apostle Paul's command to the Colossian believers to be wise in the way they act toward outsiders and to make the most of every opportunity. It would appear that the evangelical church has struggled to do this now for many years. Now, it wasn't always like this, brothers and sisters, but you don't need me to tell you that. You've probably noticed this trend yourself in the media, in the news, in interactions with the non-believers in your own life. And perhaps you feel sympathetic to at least some of the unfavorable opinions and negative critiques you encounter about the church, evangelical and beyond. Or perhaps you feel targeted by studies like this and by the faceless people surveyed in them. Perhaps this trend that you've noticed makes you feel diminished and despised, threatened and marginalized. Either way, these findings make us feel bad, and they should. As Dan DeWitt said, these statistics should grieve us. We should feel grieved, and we should take our grief to God, allow our grief over the state of the church and the brokenness of our witness and the hatred of the world to rise up to God in lament so that he can forgive and comfort and strengthen us to become better witnesses of his goodness. But sometimes, instead of taking our grief to God, we are tempted to harden ourselves against the world and its criticisms. We are tempted to raise our defenses against non-believers. And we would be right to defend against some of them. But when we defend ourselves, we are tempted to do so in reactionary, combative ways 
And the temptation is hard to resist because doing so makes us feel strong and smart and in control. It simplifies and reduces our thinking to raw, animal, self-protective instinct and life becomes simple, us versus them, black and white. We hate them and they hate us. If we give in to this temptation, not only will we be quickly disappointed by the fleeting pleasure of instant gratification, but we will also find ourselves caught in a vicious cycle that I believe has characterized this relationship between churchgoers, especially evangelicals, and the world now for years or even generations. Responding to the world's criticisms with defensiveness puts churchgoers in an adversarial posture against the world. The world is their enemy who must be fought, proven wrong, and defeated. Love is no longer part of the picture because people are typically unable to love while defending themselves. Love flows in the freedom of self-giving. Defensiveness and insecurity seal up that well, leading to an aggressive self-assertiveness or a passive-aggressive withdrawal. As churchgoers' love diminishes, so does the world's view of them. Why? Because saying that we know God's love but withholding it is read as hypocrisy, and it is. They open themselves to this criticism, and when they receive it, the wound cements their defensive posture, and the prophecies become self-fulfilling. The world hates us, so why bother trying to love it? And on the other side, the church doesn't bother trying to love us, so what's there to respect or admire? Now, breaking this cycle is difficult in our increasingly polarized and retaliatory adversarial climate. Politicians, pundits, and even pastors have discovered that they can leverage churchgoers' defensive insecurity to achieve political, ideological, or pseudo-spiritual agendas. All they need to do is to find a way to intensify churchgoers' sense of rejection by the world. All they have to do is find a way to intensify their fear of the world and their disdain for the world. One of the easiest ways to do this involves using problematic or failed policies or tragic current events or Bible verses taken out of context or all of the above to construct, to paint a picture more frightening than churchgoers' worst nightmares. Intensifying their fear takes churchgoers' defensiveness to new levels, and their anxiety prepares them to receive politicians, pundits, and pastors' calls to arms. Vote, subscribe, purchase something in my merch store, donate money. Whipped into a frenzy of reactionary activism, churchgoers hardly notice that the leaders have conflated their agendas with Christian beliefs and camouflaged it with Christianese. If anything, these churchgoers turned resistance fighters feel grateful to the politician, pundit, or pastor for giving them a mission they can feel good carrying out. They are now ready to fight for the cause. And the cause has been tailored to fit their sense of identity. So whenever they encounter resistance or rejection, they feel it on a personal, instinctive level. They don't just feel hurt. They feel endangered. Their freedom or their future or both is now at stake, which only further intensifies their fear and defensiveness and round and round and round and round they go in this cycle. 
We might call this the adversarial cycle because it is inspired and perpetuated by our true adversary, Satan, and it turns anyone who isn't like us into our adversary. I have been that churchgoer. I've been trapped in this cycle myself at various times over the past several election cycles, pretty much ever since I learned how to vote. But a vocal and visible subset of evangelical Christians has made the adversarial cycle and partnership with opportunistic leaders their entire personality. They can't help but see non-believers as enemy combatants to be fought and defended against and defeated by the true patriots of God's kingdom. Non-believers aren't worth winning over with love, only winning against with power. But the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to another way. Jesus offers us freedom from the adversarial cycle. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus counseled his hearers, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus' command to love our enemies interrupts the adversarial cycle. It liberates us from defensive insecurity and compulsive self-protection by reminding us that we already are children of our Father in heaven who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Like our Father, we can show love to those who have done nothing to deserve it. We can love one another and anyone else who shows up. Even if they treat us like their enemies, we are free from the need to respond in kind. And according to Jesus, in an earlier part of the Sermon on the Mount, we can even rejoice when we are mistreated. When we are mistreated simply for being Christian, not because we have withheld love or acted defensively or broken our promise to bear witness to Christ, those are repentable sins. But when we are rejected and criticized despite loving others and doing good, we can rejoice. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. These promises from Jesus and the others like them delivered by the apostles were all the early believers needed to dissolve their fear of the world and free them to love and to rejoice while doing it. Across the pages of the book of Acts, whenever the early believers experienced imprisonment, beatings, theft, rejection, and other forms of persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ, not only did they endure what they suffered, but they rejoiced over it. They had taken Jesus' words to heart, rejoice and be glad, for because great is your reward in heaven. The early church simply had no reason to fear the world or the non-believers around them. They had no reason to fear persecution because even in persecution, they they knew they were blessed by God. They had no reason to feel threatened by the world 
to feel a sense of victimhood or self-pity with a God as good and mighty and working as theirs and with fellow believers so so faithful and supportive and understanding. Brothers and sisters, they were truly free and in their freedom they loved and because of their love they enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was not easy to be sure. The early believers did their fair share of fighting, but they fought not against non-believers, not against flesh and blood, but against their own unbelief. They fought not to win against non-believers, but to win over non-believers to the love of God. And in this, they participated in God's work. Brothers and sisters, let us do the same. However the world may view us today, let us show the world the love that we're made of. This is how we bear witness to Jesus Christ, loving people who don't deserve it, just as Jesus did for us. So let's give the world the kind of love that turns the other cheek, the kind of love that goes the extra mile, the kind of love that offers the robber more things to take from us, the kind of love that lends without expecting repayment, Let's show the world the kind of love that is unwilling to call someone a fool, whether in person or in the comments section of a social media post. Let's show the kind of love that is willing to pluck out its own eye or to cut off its hand, not to reduce or diminish or objectify another person created in God's image. Let's model for the world the kind of love that prays humbly in the closet and not pridefully on the street corner. The kind of love that stores up treasures in heaven so that it can share its possessions on earth. The kind of love that does not worry about tomorrow, but trusts the God who cares for the sparrows and clothes the flowers of the field. The kind of love that forgives specks in others' eyes because it knows the planks in its own some of us may recognize this love I'm describing as the kind of love Jesus called for in the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully this is a valuable connection to you. It turns out it isn't for everyone in today's church. Sometime after his interview with Rain Wilson, in an interview with Scott Detrow, of all things considered, Russell Moore shared a trend he noticed through pastors who had reached out to him for counsel. Pastor after pastor shared how negatively their congregations responded to references they made specifically to the Sermon on the Mount. Churchgoers would approach them after the sermon demanding to know where they had gotten these talking points. When the pastors explained these talking points were actually the words of Christ, the churchgoers responded, that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is not ineffective. He is not weak. And I know you agree. So let's bear witness to the strength of his love. Let's offer to the world a love that is not of this world. And after many days and nights and weeks and months of living, loving well, of loving one another, of loving others as Christ loved us, after building a monument to God's goodness out of the lives filled with love, may we not be surprised to find ourselves enjoying the favor of all the people. 
and the Lord adding to their number daily those who are being saved. This, this is participation in God's work. Now, there is so much more we could say about this, but I'll leave that for the next person to preach through our family values. <laughs> for now, I offer you this reminder from Jesus, also from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp and put it on, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Participation in God's work is a culmination of the previous three PBCC family values. We seek to know Jesus through his word, through our relationships, and through his spirit. And we participate in God's work to make Jesus known to the world by the love we share with one another. May it be so at PBCC. When we started this series, we had 51 weeks left in the year 2024. Now we have 46. That means we have eight weeks until Easter, 10 until taxes are due, 23 until some of our children graduate, 30 weeks until the new school year starts, 39 weeks until election day, 42 until Thanksgiving, 45 until Christmas, and 46 weeks until 2025. Here at the end of the beginning of 2024, we still have almost 90% of the year left. How will we use it, brothers and sisters? I'd like to invite the praise team back to the platform. And as they do, I wanna ask you, which of these values do you want to grow in this year? Is there one that stands out to you today? Is it all of them? What is the Holy Spirit inviting you to try that might help you grow in one or more of these values? Let's take some time and talk with the Spirit, and James will lead us in worship. Receive now this benediction. As you go from this place, may the Holy Spirit of God empower you to know Jesus through his word, through the relationships he has brought into your life, and through direct engagement with his Spirit. And may he empower you to participate in God's work to make Jesus known to the world by the love you offer to others. May God bless you. Be well.